we need to be very careful that we don't create sort of a, an angry mob outside the, the cities that will hunt us with the pitchforks. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Malik, very well, welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. It's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for having me. We are recording this podcast from our very new and own studio. So you're our very first guest and it's an honor to have you here. You are actually a partner at Decentrum, a think tank about positive scenarios for a digital society of tomorrow. And in parallel, you also run Flatastic, a household managing app, which I'm an avid user myself. I love it and basically use it almost every day. So before we start to talk about, you know, Berlin versus Zurich, failures and your other ventures that you actually worked on, we want to focus on your personal background. You studied interdisciplinary natural sciences at ETH, and then you actually went to work in labs for Big Pharma before realizing that it was the wrong fit for you. So I just want to know, why was it the wrong fit for you? What didn't appeal you? What wasn't attractive for you in, in the Big Pharma world? Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Silvan, for this nice intro and for, for the first question. Maybe before addressing it, I want to say I'm super honored and, and humbled to be here, actually listening to, to the podcast for, for quite a while and, and, um, admiring your guests. And now I'm one of these guests, which is sort of a little bit crazy for me. Um, exactly. So my studies, uh, I actually f just followed my interest when choosing what to study and, and, um, the reason why I picked interdisciplinary sciences was that I wanted to understand the world, right? This is why my main motivation. And, um, I loved the studies. The theory was amazing. Um, we had, uh, physics with the physicists, uh, um, chemistry with the chemists and biology with the biologists. And then we were able to pick our own curriculum. Um, and we had a nice little group of people pushing each other. So we were already in, let, let's say, in the second year taking master courses and, and, and pushing ourselves um, to sort of see what, what is possible. And then came the times where I started to work in the lab and, and I'm a little bit clumsy. So, you know, you're now working on a, a micro liter and mini milligram scale. And then you're like, oops, and, and the, the flask sort of falls down on the floor. And so at the end, I, I, I felt that working in the lab compared to, to all the theory, that wasn't that appealing. Already during my bachelor thesis, which I did in microbiology, basically building um, a system for directed evolution, so working with E. coli bacteria. And uh, during that, that time, um, I thought, okay, now this obviously doesn't make me happy. What what should I do? So instead of just continuing with my master, I, I, I took a break and, and started to look for, for internships. And the first one I found uh, in Vienna. So I combined a little bit this internship thing with, with traveling with uh, Baxter. That's a big pharmaceutical lab. And my role, obviously not being um, finished with my studies, was not that interesting at that time. So I was in the quality assurance lab, which is the most boring lab that you can imagine because now you, you just do things uh, 
like your procedure every day the same and and then you have to learn like a little uh, and a new procedure and then yeah you you're able to do two of them um so that was the first sort of peek into industry which then i thought okay no way in hell i want to go into this direction um the second one was uh i was super lucky to be part of um uh uh, uh Inform, uh, informatics team at Crucel, which is based in Bern, um, working as a as a working student there. So now I was still in the pharma um, industry or biotech industry, but more on the informa- uh, information technology side of things. And yeah, I would say like the work was was nice. The surrounding, yeah, okay-ish. And um, I thought, okay, let's do one more sort of exploration of how uh my my career future could look like um i was lucky to to get this internship in in melbourne at csiro which is sort of a research facility now instead of doing microbiology i was doing organic chemistry which was basically let's say my idea was to um sort of combine these two fields and and work at this intersection um in the future and yeah melbourne is fantastic super nice city you can go surfing and uh, and the, the crowd is, is super nice, but work was again, okay, that, that wasn't for me. I wasn't I w- enthusiastic about it. Got it. And then basically after, you know, experiencing the Australian lifestyle in 2012, you then decided to join Fit Analytics, which is not like the big pharma uh, industry that you were part of before. Fit Analytics basically solved the sizing challenges for top apparel companies. And you suddenly realized that, hey, this is actually the, the stuff that is a lot of fun, that is a good fit for you. So what was so much more captivating about fit analytics than the big pharma world before? Yeah, very good question. So, okay, after Melbourne, I went uh, on and traveled a little bit and uh, came back then again to, to, to Switzerland. And I didn't have a clue what to do. Like, I mean, okay, I knew that this is basically uh, sciences followed this wasn't the right path. Um, and that was clueless. So I went back to, to Crucel. Um, they were still happy to having me um, there. And at the same time, my, my girlfriend, she had an internship in, in Berlin. So I thought, okay, if you don't know what to do, you go to Berlin. Um, and yeah, I wrote, I wrote at least a hundred uh, applications to different companies and uh, for different roles as well, because I just didn't know what I, what I want. Um, and Fitality Analytics uh, interviewed me. It was super fun, um, the, the interview already. Um, and so what was super captive about my my work there is that I was still running experiments together with uh, Yaron, who was sort of my boss at that uh, at that time. Uh, he had a PhD in statistics. Um, and, and we were looking like the, the goal of fit analytics is to sort of give you a size recommendation when you're shopping on Zalando. So do I need an S and M and L? Um, and the, the issue with that is there's no perfect size. So for a person, something might be tight and whereas for another person, this is loose, right? So you need to find to, to, to then translate this feeling into something analytical. And we were running statistical models, had uh, garments. Uh, measured, had people over and they had then to uh, f- try different sort of garments. We had a huge database of of um, measurements of people. And yeah, we were running 
experiments instead of E. coli bacteria or white uh, powders that I used in the organic uh, chemistry lab. It was with with data and and with people and with uh, products. And I was super fascinated about that process. So that was like one thing that I really loved about um, working at Fit Analytics. And the other one was that we were a super small, dedicated team, you know, yeah, most of you will know that. Like in a startup, nothing is really, let's say, um, yeah, you would say it's not that professional yet, but everybody is sort of dedicating to it and making stuff better and, and generating a good atmosphere in the team. So we had lunches together, for instance, and the team is super close uh, um and what I loved is to have a lot of responsibility as well. So after three months, my boss left and then I was sort of running all the experiments in there. Um, yeah, that's that's I think this is what what made made the difference to to the work that I had in the lab before. So you basically started working in the startup world. But then while living in Berlin, something else also happened. And I think it was with your roommate from your shared apartment where you not only had your first experience as a startupper, but basically also realized, hey, there's much more to that. So I could eventually also launch my own company. Can you talk a bit more about what happened in that, you know, shared apartment, what the spirit looked like and what actually came out of it? Yeah, uh, super gladly. So, yeah, at the time, working at the startup, having a nice, a nice life, uh, it was super, it was, it was great. And, and I thought, okay, hey, the direction is, is right. And, um, I think most people have this thought to like create a company at some point. Um, but you don't take it really seriously, right? And now you're, you're part of this small team and you start thinking, okay, hey, okay, what, I don't know what the team did so far. You might be able to do that. Um, nevertheless, I was still postponing sort of the decision of, of, yeah, what to actually do in my career and to start a startup was something. Yeah, I could do that further down the road at some point. And, um, in my shared flat, there was a, a group of friends that sort of, yeah, half a year earlier decided to leave their jobs and to found a startup and to go down this path. And I was super close to, to this um, evolution, more or less, uh, the personal one. And at the same time, um, they were looking at how I was sort of working in this startup and thinking about the future. And we had this one night where we were sitting on the balcony, as you said correctly, and me like sort of giving excuses why I... Yeah, don't start something right now. And my roommates back then arguing that it doesn't make any sense. Like my, my, my arguments just don't make any sense. If I want to start, I could start right now or even yesterday. So that was like the turning point where I realized, okay, becoming an entrepreneur is sort of a decision and not something that happens to you along the way and if you not if you don't take this decision you just never will go down that path makes sense and what actually gave you the confidence to take that decision was it you know the people around you so basically your surrounding that said hey we can do it and then you took the message and say hey if they can do it i can actually do it too or what was really the the driver behind that decision stupidity <laughs> 
So it was blank stupid at that point to start an own, an own venture because, um, yeah, as you heard, my background is in, in sciences. I didn't have a clue about economics, about how to run a company, about accounting. Um, nor did I have the connections sort of needed to, to get you started. I mean, I was, maybe six months in Berlin at that time. Okay, I had nice friends um, starting their, their startup, but you know that starting your own company, that's like, yeah, that absorbs you. So they, they were pushing me, but they were completely absorbed. So yeah, after taking the decision, actually, because I was at that time also discussing with, with uh, Fit Analytics to sort of, yeah, negotiate a contract to stay longer in the company, and asset stupidity drove me to 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 sort of say no i'm going to create my own company and yeah the first attempt it, it just failed immediately um yeah what what did he do there like what was the first attempt at entrepreneurship for you so i can either pitch it in a in a in a way where you might take it seriously or you can pitch it in a laughable way so let's go with the second one it was it was a circus more or less um and the idea behind it is a little bit close to to um, the the startup you you started. Like I saw that this uh, uh, clubs structure wasn't working so much for for our generation. Like the, the the club where you go every Tuesday or every Thursday, yeah, that wasn't with the spontaneous gatherings and new sports that you try out. So I tried to to find something in that niche. And we um, thought about also new sports or emerging sports that personally I was just um, uh, uh, testing out. So slacklining, for instance, and try to build a community around that and and the platform that you can spontaneously uh, join one of these activities in your neighborhood. So that's why like the circus kind of thing. So our first events were actually circus-like because we had slack lines and juggling balls and all that. And we're trying to attract uh, uh, people to, to join us and to sort of join our little community. Um, yeah, I still have a flyer from back then. Didn't bring, didn't bring it uh, to you. <laughs> How did you name that circus? What was the name of the project? Uh, Unicirc. Unicirc. This is a universal circus. Nice. And then how long were you actually working on it before you then gave up on that idea? Hey, that was months, like okay. two months. And I just realized, okay, I'm, I'm lost. I'm alone. Um, the first few events, they were, they were nice, but I didn't have a clue, okay, in which direction to go and how to do this. Like, okay, um, the first thing is, okay, it's a decision to become an entrepreneur and the second one is to start knowing what to do. And I just didn't have a clue. So after this uh, two months, um, I thought, okay, I need to go back to school. And this is what I did. So uh, I relocated from, from Berlin to, to Zurich. I started my master's and I knew, okay, I need certain skills to um, fit what I intended to do. And one of them was computer sciences because I, uh, with Fit Analytics, with also my work at Crucell, I, I thought, okay, this is, I want to learn more about this field. Um, and the second part was all the uh, venture courses or a crash course in startup. And yeah, lucky enough, we have very good programs here in Switzerland uh, with Venture Lab at the time, which if I'm not mistaken, is still active. Absolutely. 
And at the same time, after you got back for your master studies, you were actually also president of the ETH Entrepreneur Club for a period of time. So what role or in what way has this actually helped you to then later become a better entrepreneur than at your first attempt? So it was super important, this experience. Um, and I'm very grateful to sort of have had the chance to 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 take over this uh, or to take over to to get into this role um basically i was i was i was stoked i came back and and i was full of energy and i met the guys that uh, were were part of the entrepreneur club at a, a few events and it went pretty fast that the the former president kaspar at some point asked me yeah if you want to join and i was like yeah for sure and then sec the second uh, a question was yeah you want to become president and i was like uh, let me think about it. And I thought about it and I thought, okay, pff, yeah, let's go. Right. Um, it was quite difficult at that time because the whole committee changed. So it is one of the issues with the students clubs is that, that every semester certain knowledge just gets lost. Right. And in, in, in our case at that time, like, there was basically no knowledge transfer. I was lucky enough that a few from former committee members were still close and, and helped us along the way. Um, and yeah, that was one of the like, first experiences leading a team where I probably did a lot of mistakes and probably did a few things quite okay. Um, so that was nice. And it was also nice to have this community of like-minded people around you sort of pushing you on your on your journey because as you can imagine that's not like it's not the standard sort of way to go and um yeah i already had a few discussions with with my family that that thought okay they're not understanding what i'm doing at the moment you know were, were they happy to see that you went back to university for the master's degree because i know that from my own parents sometimes they say please go back to university, finish your master's degree, then you can get a good job because there's just this lack of perception of working in a startup is actually also a good and active career path that you can choose. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> how, do, how do you handle that? I can, can imagine that this could also put some some pressure on you to fulfill the expectations of, of your home, of your parents. I mean... I'm, I'm super grateful for, for the education that I got, got from my, from my parents, um, and also from my family. And I mean, they were right because I also at some point decided not to continue, uh, my, my master's studies, but just, uh, follow my, my projects. And they were right in some certain extent that probably my path would have had been way easier staying within this in strong institution, finishing my degree and getting people um, from this institution involved into my journey. I didn't see it at that time and I still would do it the same way because, yeah, I mean, there's no right or wrong, so to say, there's just different paths. So they were definitely right um, in, 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 in telling me to finish my studies and to, to get the, the good job, obviously. Um, and yes, it, it puts some pressure on you, but I believe that's like, that's yeah, part of the life of life. Right. I mean, that also shapes and develops you in a certain way. And I think helps you to find out what you really want to go after. And you knew what you wanted to go after because in 2014, you co-founded Yept, uh, 
which promised to be a mix of Facebook events, WhatsApp and Doodle. And he also moved back to Berlin. So basically from Zurich to Berlin, back to Zurich and now back to Berlin. Why was it the right time to go back to Berlin again? So, yeah, you see, I'm going back and forth. Um, yeah, with the team that uh, we started YEPT, uh, we were addressing this problem at that time that nobody sort of could make up his mind when it came to activities. I don't know, this generation of or this this zeitgeist of Facebook maybe you wanted to start something and everybody was sort of waiting until the last last uh, second to sort of yeah either say hey I'm, I'm probably joining or not um we we thought of of yep as a super fun prototype um exactly in this niche as you described it uh, at that time snapchat was quite hyped and uh, we were really thinking about messaging and and how you could improve messaging and um, this is how yep sort of was born and in a hackathon um, we received like the, the first place and then we thought okay let's apply to different accelerators and then um mid mid march sorry Axel Springer Plug and Play in Berlin said, "Hey, yeah, you're you're in." And my co-founders, they both uh, already lived in Berlin. This is also why we applied to this and numerous other uh, accelerators. So for them, that was a no-brainer. And for me, actually, it was also a no-brainer. I was like, "Okay, let's <laughs> let's go." Um, quit my job. I had a job at the ETH um, here and uh, started this adventure again because I was super stoked. Of, of now sort of having more knowledge of how addressing a startup, what matters. And was super confident because also the feedback we received was fantastic. One thing that is very interesting for me is your first idea, the circus idea basically didn't work out. You then went back to university and then you still decided, okay, now I go on and work on my net, next project. I want to try it again. What kept you going? Because for some people, it's just, hey, I tried it, didn't work out. Now I do something else and eventually end up at the big corporate again. So what kept you going to still continue the entrepreneurial path? I'm asking myself the same question. I don't know. <laughs> Honestly, like I think you have to decide over and over again in your life, what what you want. And um, in my special case, I think um, <laughs> I had to decide and redecide to go down this entrepreneurial part, uh, even though I would say success uh, or, or the, the, let's say what we understand as success was not, not there from moment moment one. But I don't know, like for me, it's just that's, that's the way. And um, at the end, it, it it just was n a natural shift of my attention. So when the semester sort of was finished, instead of learning for the exams and preparing for the exams, I was just working on this project and, and discussing with my co-founders and building business plans and, 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 and prototypes. And so it was just naturally this, and I just followed yeah, this instinct more or less and kept, kept going in there. Awesome. But then Yept didn't take off despite the really great start. What went wrong from your perspective and what did you learn from, from that 
startup from that project, basically? So a lot of things. Um, first, I said we received great feedback, and that was <laughs> that was the the uh, I would say one of of the bigger mistakes that we did. I mean, you get great feedback if you ask the wrong questions, um, and. Unfortunately, there's this fantastic book that uh, I recommend to everybody to, to read because it's also, I think it's 60 or, or 90 pages. It's a, a page turner as well. Uh, it's the mom test. So how to ask question that even your mom that always supports you will just straight tell you the truth about your, your idea. Um, so we didn't do that and we were, we, we received fantastic feedback and we thought, Hey, we're on the right way. Um, secondly, these accelerators, they're, they're great. Um, one needs to, to, to understand what you get out of them and what you shouldn't get out of them. So at one point, I mean, you're, you're working on your, or we were working on our product. We're a super product driven company as well and, and trying to, to make it, make it work and received tons of feedback from, from very knowledgeable, people that if you would want to listen to all of them, you were just paralyzed and, and being a bit, um, on, on, uh, um, on it far and how you say that not with not that much experience. Um, we were, we were just overthinking certain things. Um, this maybe the third thing that I learned is that, uh, uh, Fundraising is super important, especially if you're a part of an accelerator, because this is what an accelerator gives you. He gives you social proof and he gives you a stage and you need to do fundraising. And as product team, we were convinced, hey, we're, 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 we're building a messenger. If you get that right, you get viral growth. And if you get viral growth, fundraising isn't an issue. And we received also feedback into this direction. The issue is if you run out of money, you're, you can't do any experiments. Um, anymore. And also if, if there's this always hanging, let's say pressure over you that, that you have like only a, f a few weeks until money runs out, this is not nice to sort of take decisions, think clearly. Um, so that were some of the important learnings. And in general, the learnings is, is, is that a uh, startup is is a marathon, not a sprint, and we were tackling it as a sprint. Especially me, sort of going to Berlin within two weeks, more or less, not having an apartment, crashing with one founder for one month, with the second founder for for another month, which was great because we got to know each other on a way better level. But yeah, I mean, it's 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 tough, and there was no real place to relax and 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 to to. Um, have a new input to to have this life uh, work life balance as well and we were already doing overnighters in the in the first week you know we're super motivated which was fantastic but somehow okay a little bit unexperienced at that time so you were sprinting instead of going for the long run and therefore you then also quit yep and said hey let's start another application let's start fantastic Oh, it's not that that easy at that time. So um, we didn't quit so so so, uh, so quickly. Um, so we kept going. We we changed Yept like three times. Um, we Yept was all about at the beginning about getting people together 
how to make these group chats as efficient as possible, then that you can meet up. And then, yeah, this wasn't working out so well that we thought about, okay, how can we get people connected when they're already meeting up? And we had this concept of a decentralized social network, more or less, very abstract. And I mean, my, my co-founders were both theoretical physicists. Me with my background, okay, I was also like very much able to think on this abstract level, the feedback we received from, from, um, from, from business was, yeah, great idea. Let's build this photo wall. So at the end, it's an, an application where you scan a QR code, then you're connected with all the people around and you can share photos on a photo wall. And we did some nice, uh, uh, um, events with, with, uh, people that we got to know through the Axel Springer plug and play network. They were supporting us super and, um, we had the business model figured out as well in a sense, okay, we needed to sell to this event management company so they can sell our service to the event organizers um, and had the first talks, had the pricing ready. Um, but at, at one point we sat down and we thought, okay, hey, why did we start Yept? We started Yept to sort of create this viral messaging platform um, a, a platform where people sort of interact with each other. And um, now we're sort of building a sales team to go sell uh, okay technology to event management companies. And this just wasn't what we started and what our ambitions were. So we sat down with our investors from Axel Springer Plug and Play, told them that this is sort of not the direction we want to continue and um, received great feedback from 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 our partners at that time they understood and they were not angry at, at or, or 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 anything um obviously they were a bit sad so were we i mean it wasn't a, a tough a tough a, a, a simple decision um since we kept going so much we were in personal depths like i remember that uh a few times in, in Berlin, I didn't know how to pay my rent and I had to go to my parents to, to sort of get some, some, some money. And that was super tough. As I said before, like my, my parents sort of saying, Hey, finish your degree, get a nice job and, and, uh, earn some nice bucks and me coming back and saying, okay, I did this startup thing and I need now your money. And then again, even though they didn't understand what I'm doing, why I'm doing that, they were just supporting me, which was, which was, uh, um, Fantastic. And sort of to, to get back on track, we stayed in the same team. We really liked working together and we founded a, an agency sort of, um, selling our abilities to build prototypes or even whole technical infrastructures with the intention to, um, still test new product ideas and then eventually spin them off. Makes sense. I just have one follow-up question because you just described that you were basically building something that didn't really feel good for you. Um, was that like you had a mission in, in your head that you discussed as a team and then you apparently took a detour or took a different path than actually following your mission? Was Would you agree that this is basically what, what happened or how, how it felt like? That you got away from your core mission that you defined at the beginning? Yes, a little bit. It was basically the way, uh, or, or yeah, a possibility to to make that uh, venture work economically. Yeah. 
But we understood if we do this, it's going to destroy what we set out for, right? We will be building a company that we don't want to run. And then it's just better to stop. And it's better to stop earlier than when you're like in the middle and you have clients and investors and and, and a, a, a team that sort of relies on you pushing forward this mission. Um, yeah. Yeah, there, I think it, it makes a lot of sense to to reach that conclusion because if you then compete with someone else who has the same idea but is actually fully convinced, they will just outbeat you because they are more motivated and they can really see where they want to go. And uh, that's a wise decision to not go into that battle. Did you already have investors with like uh, Plug and Play, Axel Springer? Were they invested in in your in Yept or how did that work? I was a classic accelerator deal. So we received, I think, 25,000 um, euro, 25, euros exactly, and um, gave them 5% for, uh, um, right. for their investment, as well as for the, the program that we participated in, which was running like for three months. And they helped us with mentors and networking. Got it. So it wasn't like a, a big like investment round that you did there, but you still had some money, some external money in there. How do you approach the the discussion, the the talk to them where you then actually informed them about that you want to quit and stop? I'll just be open and and, and straightforward in in your reasoning. Um yeah, I think I mean they knew that we had to take a few detours and they knew that we were struggling, obviously, right. um, were uh, in contact on a regular basis. So I think for them, it wasn't a, a huge surprise that we took this decision. And it's also part of the game. So they know that most of the startups that go through their program probably won't succeed at the end. So then you had your agency with the same core team, basically. Were you still living in the shared apartment? Yes. And was it that chaotic that you then came up with the idea of launching Flatastic as basically an app to manage your household? Hey, it wasn't that chaotic, <laughs> but you know, like at the end, I mean, I, I was living in shared flats for such a long time and it was always the same discussions. Um, so were my co-founders um, and yeah, we were just building this actually <laughs> poor, pure joy and, and to because we were fascinating, uh, fascinated about about building uh, uh, mobile apps um, at that time and and providing a solution for this problem, and that was the intention. So we, we built Flutastic, we showed it to our shared flats. They started using it, and then they told their friends, and then more people started using it. And at some point, we were like a thousand people using it, and then some newspapers wrote about it, and then you have suddenly ten thousand people using it, and, and more. And yeah, that was that was quite nice in a sense of that it was just intrinsically what we just wanted to solve what we wanted to do with no intentions whatsoever to build a big business out of it, um, but rather just problem solution, super right. simple. I love that because of two aspects. First of all, you are now very much aligned with the mission. You, you wanted to solve a problem that you had a good motivation to solve. And at the same time, you also solved your own problem. I think that's a very good combination to start a business from. Yeah, one of my early mentors uh, told me always eat your own dog food. And I'm still doing that if I start a new uh, venture or start a new project. Just yeah, try to experience it and understand if I can use it myself, um, if it will create value uh, for me, which I like a lot, to be honest. 
makes sense. So you just told uh, us about the growth of Fantastic from a thousand to ten thousand users and beyond that. At a certain point, you probably also thought about getting investors on board or not. How did you approach that topic with Fantastic? So it was rather an agency strategic decision that we said, okay, we want to test different business ideas or different products, and then at some point pick one and and focus. Um, or even like this pick one and focus was naturally, we understood that we are good in, in, in agency work because we can deliver. Our customers were happy at that time, but we didn't want to scale our structure. We, we just inten uh, intrinsically knew, okay, it's not an agency business that we want to make big. It's still like this, okay, this small product team that finds a problem, solves that really nicely, um, and has something scalable within this 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 uh, uh, solution or in, within this this business model um and we ran different tests i don't know if you remember at that time uh this app yo was quite uh, popular where you had only the pop possibility to send a yo it was yeah. super funny like in our in our uh, uh friend circle everybody was using it and um we were thinking okay hey nice it was again this messaging you know this messaging problem um, and we're figuring out if there would be a possibility to have a, a messenger with only emoticons. And then we did a, a prototype. And at, in one month when we tested that, I received so many good nights from my peers and friends <laughs> because that's the only thing that you kind of can do with two emoticons, right? Right. Um, so that was one direction. The other direction is like we looked at, at restaurants and we thought, hey, it would be nice if um, they're not booked out. You could have a last-minute table reservation Um so we did a pitch deck and started directly to to sort of sell the solution to restaurants. And after three restaurants, we knew, okay, they just there was so many people from um, this this uh, deal platforms, you know, that already went over there and they had bad bad experience, and there was just no motivation at all for such a pro uh, platform to to be adopted. And we run several of these these tests while um, building customer projects. And, and at some point we said, okay, it's now, it's time to decide and, and pick one. And at that point we reached um, 50,000 users with uh, Flatast and we thought, okay, hey, obviously like this is the one thing that uh, problem solution fits. So we should pick or we could pick that one. Nice. And you always had this agency set up. So you were testing ideas and basically the agency was there to probably pay for rent and buy your time to actually test business ideas. Is that a setup that you would recommend or is it also a big distraction and energy dragger basically to a certain degree because you always need to do things in parallel and cannot really focus on just one thing? Oh, it's so difficult. So validating business ideas before running makes a lot of sense. If it's an agency or if it's your day job and you validate on, on the side, um, I would recommend that to everybody. Like do a little cert, a little validation before really starting. Um, then I believe that at some point you need to take the decision because building an agency and building a service company that sort of fulfills the, the needs of, of, of your customers versus building a, a product company, that's just two different things. Um, and one will distract the other, and that yeah, at some point you will need to 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 take the decision which path you wanna you wanna go. Right, and you did so with Fantastic, but still the question remains: 
why didn't you get any investor on board or what were the thoughts behind that? Because you're still a bootstrap business to these days. Yeah. Um, so with these numbers and we had some nice pitch decks ready, we gave ourselves three months, which is just not enough time. Um, can happen in three months. If it happens, then one is lucky. As well as, let's say, um, we did a few mistakes that I, now looking back, wouldn't do the same way. In a sense of, okay, we had people really interested and maybe the issue was a little bit that we tried to, to make it by the book, you know? And what means by the book? I mean, we read all the blogs from Silicon Valley and we were trying to follow this mentality. The issue with that is one, Europe works differently than Silicon Valley. You need a business model in most cases. Um, two, fundraising is not this like, okay, this thing where, where you have like an exact plan and, and, and you do it like that. But yeah, if there's the opportunity, it can make sense to get liquidity in, um, get an investor on board and then make the next sort of step there. Right. So in a nutshell, not too much, uh, not enough time and mistakes. And um, yeah, after these three months, we were actually invited to Silicon Valley uh, with this program, Black Box VC, that was sponsored by Google for Entrepreneurs. Um, and they were trying to convince us to sort of move our business and 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 ourselves to 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 Silicon Valley. That's like the goal of the the program. They introduce you to investors, to the ecosystem, show you how things work. And we had nice talks. And people in Silicon Valley were quite impressed by the numbers that we already had. Right. Um, still, at that time, we were already broke again, and so we sat together, the three of us, and after. Like all these struggles, we looked each other into the eyes and we said, okay, that's it. Let everybody should just for a while go his own path and let's see what, what happens. And looking back, I was tough, but I'm super grateful that it played out exactly that way. Because as you said, Fantastic is still bootstrapped. And, um, one of, um, our, our early, um, uh, supporters, always said, look, Malik, that's your camper van. It's not a rocket ship. It's your camper van. You need to treat it like that. So your camper van, it goes 80 miles an hour on the highway. Um, it's not super fancy. It's not going to go to the moon, but it will drive you down to the beach and you'll have a great time and you need to sort of work on it a little bit and fix it here and there. And it's going to be reliable and, and, and nice. And I think it also took us some time to understand Flatastic as, as, yeah, okay, hey, as a bootstrapped business um, and not this huge opportunity where you need to exponentially grow your user base in order to monetize them later on. And, you know, all that stories that you read back in the time. I don't know if you, if these are still 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 the stories in the, in the startup space. I hope not. I love that analogy because, you know, back then in, in 2015, 2016, it was basically, as it just described, get VC money, grow as fast and quickly as possible. Don't worry about profitability. You can solve that later. And then it's it's super hard as an entrepreneur to actually say, no, I'm not going down that path. I do something differently. I want to have no investors at all. I want to focus on my own ship, my, my camper bus. I think that's a wonderful analogy to also see, hey, entrepreneurship doesn't necessarily mean or equal entrepreneurship. There are different versions that you can choose from. 
And you mentioned also the different paths that you then said, hey, let's focus on our own paths uh, individually. And you actually did that. And in 2016, you joined the ranks at Modem, a company which offers data integrity for supply chain operations. And I'm just wondering what was so interesting for you at Modem? What, what did you decide to, okay, it's time to join that company now? So, yeah, exactly. After taking the decision, everybody goes his own path. I stayed a little bit longer in Berlin and was looking at job opportunities there. But I understood that I went to Berlin to, 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 to get a startup off the ground and this didn't work. And I was, I was having this long uh, distance relationship. So I thought, okay, that's it. I'm moving back. So I came back to Zurich. Obviously, as you heard, um, it wasn't a big economic success. I mean, there was a lot of personal growth, but uh, yeah, economic from an economic perspective, I just had to to find a, a new um, a new job. So I, I I took a lot of interviews, I met a lot of people, um, and I met Mark Degen, my co-founder at, at Modum, um, and and he told me about different ideas that he had. And one was was okay, hey, we combine blockchain with IoT and bring that into the pharmaceutical sector. And I was like, hmm, that sounds interesting, and started to dig a little bit deeper. Um, and going back, I told you about this uh, decentralized social network that we tried with Momenta.io. So that's like the first time that I encountered and went a little bit looking into these decentralized technologies. Um, unfortunately, we took a little detour there, ended up somewhere else. And that was like the second time. And uh, in, in these two years, the space matured so much. So there was um, Ethereum, uh, a, a Turing Complete smart contract platform where you could now actually write programmable code onto a smart uh, onto a, a blockchain infrastructure so i was so fascinated about the possibilities of this new technology about the 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 um the movement in this in this space as well as as the application that we choose because most of the applications were sort of in the financial sector obviously with bitcoin being being a replacement for 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 money um, makes a lot of sense. Bringing that into supply chain, where you have a lot of transactions as well, where you have people that do not know each other along the value chain, um, that was a nice angle to to this or for for this new technology, um, and adding this IoT component on it. Obviously, if you want to track transaction in a in a space where physical goods are are moved you need to be able to track them uh, appropriately so yeah there was a huge fascination for for this 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 uh, this problem as well as for the the technology um around at the, at that time before we continue with the show we would like to introduce you to our new partner nuco Nuco helps founders navigate the paperwork that starting a company involves. From the first consultation all the way to the commercial register, Nuco has helped more than 900 entrepreneurs start their company, and they do so at highly competitive prices. To find out more, visit nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. Again, that's nuco.ch slash Swisspreneur. And now, on with the show. Awesome. And you were actually also the CEO of the company. But then in 2017, you actually switched your role from CEO to advisor. 
And that was also around the t- same time as Mod- Modem just raised over 13 million in a token sale. So how did he actually come to that conclusion to then probably at one of the best moments in company history, no, it's time for me to step down as CEO and uh, just be an advisor to the company. Our Modem was a, a hell of a ride. That was just pure craziness, um, more or less. So, I mean... I- I joined the project um, super early on. There's no company found, nothing. We had like uh, people at University of Zurich building a prototype and that's it. And and yeah, I mean, Mark's super cool. He was like, okay, I was uh, working, uh, joining these meetings and actually running this meeting. And after a week, he'll say, you want to do CEO? I was like, yeah, why not? So um, uh, within three months, we built a prototype. We applied to the accelerators. And we received a yes from all the accelerators around Zurich. That was fantastic. So at the end, we could choose. We chose Kickstart Accelerator. Um, we won our vertical at Kickstart Accelerator. And we, we had first, first, uh, uh, first pilots. Um, at that time, still with pharmaceutical companies sort of delivering, um, yeah, pallets to, to wholesalers. And along the way, we understood, hey, our solution needs to be rather placed in the second part where we have a higher volume. So the, the wholesaler sort of sends, um, yeah, half a million parcels a day, uh, um, to all pharmacies and, and, and doctors and, and hospitals because yeah, basically, if, if you go to a pharmacy, you buy an aspirin, it's already reordered. And there's this whole infrastructure behind that. And and, and with with our solution, um, we were able to solve a regulatory issue that, that the wholesaler had at that, uh, at that time. But we needed to understand how to place our solution and with whom to work. So like the first pilot was okay. Hey, the volumes are not big enough. The second pilot was sort of, hey, um, we're working with the wrong entities because the the pharmacies, we, at the time we sent uh, our, our app and our sensors that were like development kits, more or less, to, to the pharmacies and to the, to, the, to the doctors, which sort of always sort of change who is in charge of, of um, getting the goods in. And yeah, our, our second pilot had maybe 25 um, 25 companies and our support was already overwhelmed. Yeah, our app was buggy, but we understood this is not scalable because yeah, there's just not no way to do that. And then we we focused more on the logist, logistics people because these go and pick up the, the the goods and they go and deliver the goods. And this is like the second thing we found out. We did a a, a, a series A and um, a seat a seat round. And we we're preparing the the second uh, seat round at, at that um, at that time, where let's say we had certain delays from our corporate partners, which triggered that our already aligned investors sort of said, "Okay, if the corporate partner can wait with a commitment, we can wait with the commitment." And we were like, "But we can't because our money is running out." And at that time, there was this this crazy ICO bubble. I'm sure you remember. Um, where people were raising hundreds of millions with within seconds, more or less. And we were looking at that very early on. At the beginning already, we thought about ICOs. We thought always, okay, hey, as a company, being active in this very uh, old school industry, logistics or um, and pharmaceutical logistics, supply chain. I mean, okay, we thought, okay, let's do it the, the ordinary way, more or less. That was our intention. We were 
a little bit forced into uh, into going down the path of of the ICO, uh, which also was just yeah, it's crazy times. I mean, um, I haven't haven't uh, experienced something like that ever. Um, and basically, the role change that was. That was sort of clear very early on already. When setting up the company, it was clear with the my, my co-founders that uh, um, that I will sort of do the first steps and then hand it over at some at some point. That was good for them. That was good for me. Um, and with the ICO, the company was in a stage where it was nicely financed. Um, we had certain relationships uh, with with uh, customers in place. We had. Um, started our own development or engineering of, of our own sensing device because you need that if you want to be active in the in the pharmaceutical supply chain. Um, so it was in a in a pretty nice space. And also what happened is that yeah raising this uh 13 and a half million US dollar just made the company a complete different one. So it was just yeah, we would have or we needed to start from from scratch. And Simon Dersecker, who who took over, we were in contact with him already like months before, and and he knew the team, he knew the challenge, um, and he had the perfect background. So his background was robotics. He built uh, uh, sensing uh, devices for GoPro at the end. Um, so he did first the startup exited that at GoPro and had a whole team here in Zurich that was that was working in this niche. Um, and it was clear that he will be sort of taking over. And with that, we had a nice sort of change where I could step back, which was difficult um, at, at the time. But I also understood in order to give room for somebody new to create his vision, more or less, because I believe this is like the job of a of a of a uh, founding CEO is to sort of give the vision, and and yeah, steer the ship, more or less, and yeah, it's not nice to steer the ship if like the old one is always saying, hey, but before we did it that way, you know, so it was nice to sort of have this role change, um, to to let Simon take his place and 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 and, and steer steer that ship. Makes sense. You said that you already had this discussion at the beginning that you will eventually leave or change uh, your role. Did you have any KPIs or like hard goals defined when that would be the case? Or how did you actually have the conversation about that topic? No, no hard uh, KPIs. We just agreed that basically, okay, my role will be the first steps and then um, there will be somebody else coming in. And we had very early on, we had with uh, Stefan Weber, a very experienced uh, COO who has a postdoc, uh, who joined the team, um, who helped me as well, really on the hardware side of things. I mean, as I said, Modum was a super wild ride. Uh, I remember that uh, Thomas Bocek, um, who, who sits on the board, said at one point, Modum feels like driving in these Duschwurst. I don't know if you know yes. these uh, in these Duschwurst and with like 200 on a on a on a highway, more or less. So this is basically what we did: just full gas, more or less. Right, and you never know: is the car gonna break or are, are we gonna make it? 
I also wanted in that regard the setup that you chose because you were there from the very early days, but you knew you would eventually transition out of the operational role. How do you actually incentivize yourself for that? Because then you, you lay the groundwork, so you probably do want to have some shares of the company, but you also know that you're, you're not going to be there for a super long time. So you probably also want to have some cash coming in. So how did you balance that at Modum? Yeah, that's a difficult um, discussion. I think what was way more relevant at the end, if you want to sort of have um, this impact as a as a startup uh, team, you need to be completely dedicated, and that will is not only like with your brains and and your time, but with your emotion. You're just completely there, and this is basically what I did. I put everything that I had into this company. What is way more difficult is to sort of, and I didn't understand that back then, to sort of step down and leave something of yourself kind of behind. That is, uh, uh, yeah, was an interesting experience, I have to say. Also very challenging because you you leave at the very successful point. And did you never think that, hey, I could also continue for a couple more months or one or two more years. Definitely. Um, it was just the timing was right at that point. What was also the case is that I was just, I was super tired. I mean, you heard my story a little bit, basically from one failure to the next one, to the next one, to okay, to this crazy ride. So I needed a break. And with that, I was also, um, yeah, I, I, I could have this 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 possibility in my life to to have some time and reassess where am I? Because as as said from, from sort of studying a completely different field and ending up at Modum, that was just a crazy, crazy, crazy ride. So um, yeah, I was very fortunate to spend some time in, in Morocco uh, and we had a super nice uh, time there. I was doing a little bit of remote working, a lot of surfing, and just enjoying time with with local people as well, yeah. And uh, to really fully recharge the batteries. Yes, yeah. Makes sense. Have you ever regretted stepping down as CEO when looking back? I mean, regret is a is 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 a is a strong word. Obviously, sometimes you're you're thinking, hey, it was it was super nice, and you think about what would have been if. I would have continued what would have been. Um, but honestly, I think regretting things um, is not that helpful because I'm pretty, pretty happy in the situation that I am currently. So even though I did a lot of stupid things and I think I'm still doing quite a lot of stupid things, I'm, I'm, I don't regret anything. And I would do everything this again the same way because I needed, obviously I needed this experience. Right. And then after recharging your batteries, it was also time to join a new project. You did so in 2018, where you joined Decentrum, basically the think tank that we mentioned uh, in the beginning. Where do you actually first hear about Decentrum? So that was just shortly after I left, uh, or I've, yeah, after I stepped down at Modum, there was uh, um, this idea coming my way that people wanted to 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 uh, create a, a same day weed um, uh, delivery shop more or less so order your weed and get it uh, 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 the same evening more or less or within half an hour 
Um, and my initial reaction to that was, I'm not going to do that because I, with all my projects and ventures, I want to be able to tell my mom and this she wouldn't approve. So right. that was the first thing. The second thing is that when I was in Morocco, um, I was, I was uh, at the beginning at least quite active. So it popped up, uh, this one page popped up um, asking me for feedback. And at that time, I also joined the, the Slack of, of the association, which was, I think, early, um, early 2018. Um, with that, I understood, okay, wait, Malik, now you, you, you sort of went to Morocco to um, reflect a little bit what happened. In the first sort of part of, of your time there, I, I had some mandates that I was doing remotely, which were super fun, and they were about to sort of fade out. And at that time, I was grabbing the next thing and I was like, stop, you can't do this. You now you just need to take time and, 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 and do nothing for a while. Um, and see what happens. But this can be so much harder than you would imagine, right? Yeah. What, what, what helped you to actually successfully then do nothing or just focus on yourself? Because if you have your email open or your smartphone even in reach, I can imagine that you get very easily distracted or carried away by the potential of new projects. I would say people. We had such a lovely neighborhood um, in Esaruir. So we were living in the middle of the uh, old city and the downstairs family would invite us. And um, my girlfriend started a project with, with the mom there, sort of uh, uh, help helping um, her to gain a salary by bringing tourists to the local hammam. So she was really involved and I supported her in, in this and I had a, just nice people around. And that was, yeah, I would say that was definitely helping a lot to sort of, okay, say, yeah, I, now I want to focus my energy in the here and now and not in my laptop and possible projects of the future. Makes sense. So the reality was far too good to pass on. Yeah. <laughs> So then you had that one pager where they were asking for feedback. What happened afterwards? How did you then get more and more involved uh, at the Centrum? So we stayed in contact and then you, basically all of the people uh, involved in, in, in the Centrum. Um, I helped a little bit along the way. I, I couldn't completely just do nothing with with yeah some introductions or some things that I thought, okay, just talk with, with each other. And then uh, when I came back, I thought, okay, hey, I want to arrive first. I want to take some time and, and understand um, what happened in this time where I was just sort of being and reflecting. And I had different discussions with yeah, super interesting projects. And these projects, they were, most of them had huge ambitions. And um, I maybe felt as well after what, what, <laughs> After after this super lucky coincidences and super nice timing at Modum that maybe this needed like I needed to top that, you know. But my my stomach in all this discussion was just screaming, "Don't do this!" And I was just hanging around in in with the Centrum people more and more, and um yeah, getting just sucked in more and more. And there was like this one day where I came um to to the office and said, "Okay, hey." If we do it, let's do it right. And um, the Centrum started as an association and is still like the, the main entity is an association of it, uh, has has uh, um, 
some some reason behind that that there's no personal ownership in a in a um, association um we didn't want this to go uh in the way of of the mission that we we want we wanted to follow um and uh yeah i said okay let's do it and do it do it right in a sense of let's try to focus all our energy into this project and and get it going because at the time the ambitions were also big at the centrum well, it was a super struggle to find the time to dedicate uh into these causes that we were sort of kicking off um starting discussions about the the impact of of this digital transformation not only from a startup or technology perspective but for us as humans as society which is super important that that's like the second part that, that convinced me and probably was also my stomach sort of saying okay that's the right thing that i want to do because um, i mean i was always driven by creating value and um you know that along the way when creating the startup uh you have to prioritize at some point at some point you need also to make sure that 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 your investors are happy uh, and that you generate profit and this time it was the other way around like it was clear that the impact and is 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 coming first and that we there was nothing that that we could do within or that we can do within the centrum to to change uh, this this order Got it. You also say that you're an actual do tank instead of just a think tank. So what does that actually mean, that difference? Yeah, I mean, uh, maybe quickly elaborate on, on, on how we came to the conclusion that we act as a, as, a, as a think tank. We knew that we were not a classical startup and we weren't an agency. Um, and we saw, okay, the most similar thing to what we, we were doing was, was think tanks. And we looked at, at the think tanks that are around and they give Im- impulse more or less they write pieces of of uh, uh papers to explain uh, a, a trend to explain uh, um uh, something that is happening and give their advice or or their conclusion and and um help people along the way so to say and um one and that's me personally and yeah most of the early the center members as well just don't like to write that much we write to we like to build way more. Um, so we just, yeah, again, followed our interest and, and sort of, yeah, kept this as a speciality because I would say what differentiates us from most of the organizations, um, that are similar to, to us or that are, uh, uh, in the same field is that we can actually build prototypes and products in house and, and, and have all the experience from people that worked at, at startups, that founded startups, that founded agencies. Um, or uh, founded bars and clubs, so there's a very entrepreneurial spirit within our with our team, and this is basically what what we um, focused at the beginning, at least a lot. Now it's a little bit more balanced. There's one or the other piece that we write as well, where I'm super thankful because this is also a way that you can have a, a good impact um, in 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 the world. And one question that obviously comes up, so you're not the classic startup anymore, but you still have bills to pay. So how are you actually financed? Yeah, that's a very good question. We should have asked ourselves that before sort of going <laughs> down that <there. laughs> Yeah, I mean, we understood that the the 
let's say that the classical way of, of a think tank being born is that an entity which has means says, okay, we want to um, investigate a certain topic or we want to contribute something to the discourse that is happening. So they create a budget and then they give the budget to very smart people to act in, in that. Um, yeah, we didn't, we did it the other way around. We thought, okay, it's super important that people, especially from the tech industry, cover this area and we want to do this. Um, and that said, yeah, that was also sort of the, the first few months that were super tough. We, we, we tried to finance ourselves, um, with projects that would not put us in a niche that we are suddenly an agency or that we are a startup or that sort of are against our DNA. Um, but we figured out that, uh, figured that out pretty, pretty quickly. And now what was a super problem at the beginning is our biggest, biggest asset that we are very independently financed. So there's with different people, we have different uh, uh, relationships and, and work on, on different topics. Even within topics, we have uh, different entities that sort of finance us from um, uh, uh, the public sector, from the private sector. So we work with companies as well that have a, an issue that we can solve. We work with academic institutions where we give lectures um, and, and, and provide to, to research topics that, that they are looking um, at. And then we have uh, luckily very good uh, partners that support us, be it foundations or um, uh, uh, organizations like Engagement Migro, which is just, it's, I'm super grateful that these organizations are around to, to, to um, finance the efforts that we and also other uh, uh, social entrepreneurs do. Yeah, that's a very important contribution to make such a thing even possible. And you're actually interested in various topics, various very interesting topics. One is remote work and mountain offices, as you used to work yourself from the mountains, basically. Another one is universal basic income and, of course, also decentralized organizations. I don't want to rush through all of them, but if I look at the time, I think we do have time to, to dig into one deeper. And if I had to choose one just out of personal interest, it would be the universal basic income. So... Why is this even important? Why do you think about universal basic income here in Switzerland where we have so much money, so to say? Yeah, that's a interesting topic. So the story goes as follows that I was convinced already when when we had to vote about that, maybe because I'm super optimistic. Um, I believe that a lot of people are, are convinced that something like universal basic income would help societies in, in general. Um, and the, the, the question is how to get that started. And the other question is as well, and I can't answer that. Nobody can answer that. What are the real effects? What I know is sort of my, my conviction that um, a human being is kind one, a human being is wants to be productive, wants to contribute to society. Um, this is like conviction. And the other thing is experience that lack of money, and that's a problem. Lack of money is just not helping driving good decisions in a sense of good, like healthy for one personally 
or even for society. So like that's I think these three things that 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 um yeah make me convinced that universal basic income is something that we need uh, definitely to to talk more about and 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 also get experiments running. Absolutely. We are also big fans of Naval Ravikant, the founder of AngelList, and on the Joe Rogan episode, he actually took a pretty controversial standing and says Universal basic income, that's a non-solution to a non-problem, to put it in his words. And for him, it's much more about an education problem and not about a real money problem. So there are new jobs that emerge with new technologies, but we are not capable of basically educate the people to go from one job that is not in the high demand anymore and make them shift to the new jobs. So what do you think about these statements of Naval that Universal basic income, it sounds all nice in theory, but it's basically a, a non-solution to a non-problem. Uh, I mean, Naval is very controversial with, with all of his statements, I would say, and that makes him also special. Um, so where I don't agree is that it's a, a non-problem because as said, lack of money is a problem. There is a lot of research actually being done on that, that if um, such that, that if people are lacking money, that they 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 are taking badder decisions and from personal experience i know that if you're lacking money if i'm in berlin and i don't know how to pay my rent i don't have the foresight of thinking okay is it smart is that a smart decision that i'm taking is this also a a, 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 a sustainable decision for me and for my environment so from this perspective i would argue that the 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 Non-problem is definitely a problem. And the question is, at that point, which problem do you address, right? I mean, that um, there is a shift happening. I think we can all agree to that. What is happening with our workforce? We don't know that. So I wouldn't argue that most people will lose their job. I think a lot of people need to rethink on how they are sort of contributing to society, that the personal relationship might be more important than it is at the moment. But at the end, I just don't know. And that's the scientist again in me that says, okay, if I don't know, I run experiments. And this is basically also what we do with a, a, a thing, which is one of our, uh, um, let's say, bigger projects. And I would even say it's not only a bigger project, but it's a small, small startup that um, was was created uh, with our partner organization, um, the Freie Grundeinkommen, which is sort of way deeper in this basic income um, topic. They were already part of the initiative in 2016 and stayed and, and sort of worked on, on solutions on that. And our contribution sort of to, to Ting was to bring their big ideas of um, how it could be feasible that all of us could have a, a basic income um, on a national level um, to bring that to, okay, what do we do today and tomorrow in order to, to have the possibility to test this. And we took very um, uh, consciously the, the path of not doing that in a political manner, but do it entrepreneurial. So we created thing with that in mind that, hey, there needs to be experiments in that field and that there's a shift happening and our systems to, to sort of pick people up when, when, when they need it most. They haven't changed since industrial re revolution. So we need to rethink these anyhow. Um, and this is how we can contribute by just learning. And 
so far the journey is going great. I mean, um, to explain quickly how it works, uh, to be eligible to, to, to receive basic income, you need to become a member. And um, the first thing we did is basically we switched the idea of basic income around that not everybody gets it, but everybody pays. So this is also something that we need to understand. Basic income will not be something that is for free for our society. We need to be willing to pay something for it. And we need to be willing to pay something for it, even if we are not uh, using it. And yeah, you remember eat your own dog food. Obviously, like I, I, I had to do that. And that was, I, I remember that. I mean, we, we recommend around 5% of your salary that you, that you pay uh, as a, as a membership fee. That's not nothing. That's like, that's a substantial amount, more or less. And it was a big step to do this. But immediately afterwards, it just felt right because you knew, um, that, hey, I'm now sort of insured for basic income, more or less. And still now I have to laugh, like every time when I go into e-banking, like there's this 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 uh, outgoing transaction, which is like Grundeinkommen, more or less, where I know, okay, like I'm I'm contributing to that. And we have come a long way. So Ting has a nice um, uh, um, platform where you can read about the whole idea, the concept, and, and uh, we have approval from Finma that we can run it that way. And uh, we are approaching 100 uh, members which is just blowing my mind. There's like a hundred members sort of contributing to, to, to basic income. Um, we have the second, uh, development. This is how we call somebody receiving basic income starting. Uh, uh, so there's actually now evidence happening or evidence. There's, 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 there's data being created. There's experience being created. And I think this is what the debate and discourse kind of needs because I'm convinced we will get something like universal basic income um, sooner or later on a on a worldwide level and this is what I'm dedicating to uh, on a national level I am convinced that this will make our nation more innovative um, where we need to sort of figure out which way we want to go is um, yeah I think uh, George Orwell had uh, in his in his novel a very dystopian view on on basic income, where where people are sort of only uh, hanging around at home and depending on 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 these people that are feeding them. So we need to be very careful how to to shape this uh, new system of supporting people in their mission of 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 going down the path of intrinsic motivation. I think Darren Naval actually made a good point. It's very much about meaning, about doing meaningful work, but also f feeling meaningful in a certain way. And I think that's really crucial to also uh, rely on in, in the whole concept. One question here, though, you know, you can give the people money if they need the money. Uh, but what about giving them instead of money, just access to basic housing, to Internet, to smartphone? to get everybody to a minimum standard, as you theoretically would with the income, with the money, but not giving them the actual money. Um, have you also thought about that? Yes, definitely. And I mean, the implementation of thing is a bit further away from this uh, basic income thought. So in order to be eligible, you need to explain why you want to use it and there's a certain criteria that need to be met so it needs to be something that 
is intrinsic needs something to be that is not egoistic so that somebody else also has something from that. And then obviously as well, um, we need to have enough funds to sort of make that happen, which at, uh, uh, up, uh, so far wasn't ever uh, an issue. So, I mean, already with our implementation, we're not at the pure universal basic income. Um, and I mean, I'd like to get pure, to the more purer way because I believe that, as said, lack of money is an issue and you can give people uh, this 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 money and then just trust that they will um, need it or, or or use it for what they need most. They know best what they need, right? So if somebody is super happy in a small apartment but needs new equipment um, or needs a mobile phone, who am I to tell him, hey, this is not the right thing to do? I mean... Sure, yeah. Makes sense. And there again, there's lots of research that, that uh, uh, with that, the whole expenses that we as a community have to um, interact with people in need, to control people that are in need, this would be substantially reduced. So most of the effort that go the direction of, of basic income, they resulted, even though that wasn't the intention at the beginning, but they resulted that the budget that they sort of spent for basic income was compensated um, three or four times because they were just saving money. Because now the beggars that sort of were costing the state of London uh, hundreds of thousands of, 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 of pounds a year they needed like 50,000 because that was all they needed. They they bought smartphones and they were super also um, knowledgeable about, about how much they can take from this, let's say, shared pot or from, from this budget. It's the same experience that we're doing at the moment. So we are actively pushing our members to, to take the money because nobody or we're also super hesitant with with. The, this this shared common good that we created for each other makes sense. So very exciting times ahead, I would say. And you you've also come a very long way, I would say. You know, we talked about big pharma, about startups in the early days, failures, and even now universal basic income. In general, are you optimistic for the future, or what is your perspective where we will actually where we are heading to as a society? I mean, I'm in general an op optimistic person. I think you can feel that or see that. Um, sometimes so optimistic that it's bordering to stupidity, you know. Um, but I like this this asset uh, of me. And then when I look into the future, I mean, um, th that's basically also what we do at the Centrum. We, we we try to imagine futures because there's not one. There's different scenarios, and yeah. This was also one of the drivers to, to join um, uh, the Zentrum in a sense of making sure that we're not ending up in a dystopian future because it's not, I mean, it's imaginable and certain developments go into this direction and it's up to us to make sure that we're not ending up in a, in a world that we personally, our children and their, their children don't want to live in. So I think that's a huge responsibility that we have as a society and we need to make sure that that, that this this um yeah that we don't take a, a wrong path there. Exactly. 
So maybe to wrap up the conversation, what do you personally, but also with Decentum have planned for the next 12 months? What do you have in store for us? So as said, or, or you quickly talked about the three topics that I'm personally involved in. So that's my main focus. I would, I would say, uh, universal basic income with, with Ting, uh, that we are pushing forward. Um, remote working is, is rather like the focus. What is digital transformation? What does that mean for rural? Um, uh, regions. What does that mean for mountains? How can they profit? And the idea or, or why that's fascinating is that the difference between people living in different cities. So if I live in Zurich, in, in, in Berlin, in New York, or even in Casablanca, the difference is not existing. Like we wear the same clothes, we listen to the same music, we eat the same food, but drive two hours here into the mountains and you will be in a different world. And you see this, this, this difference is not only on a cultural level, but on a political level, as well as that uh, most of these resources that are created at the moment in dig digitalization are focused in, 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 in cities and, and urban areas. And we need to be very careful that we don't create sort of a, an angry mob outside the, the cities that will hunt us with the pitchforks. So this is basically what we try to do with, with our, um, with our, uh, uh collaboration with the Naturpark Beverin, where we have now a first project, Deskimdorf, kind of creating a co-working space for the whole region, but mainly getting the, 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 the people living there uh, interested in this digital transform uh, transformation, get them participating, get them to understand that that's a big chance as well for them, um, trying to, to, to yeah, close the gap a little bit, get people from Zurich up there, but not only to just visit, consume, and then go again, but to actually interact and, and create maybe joint projects and, and talk and, and discuss so that we as a society come closer. So that's like one direction that, that, that we're pushing. And, and then the last one that you quickly, quickly mentioned with decentralized organization. I mean, that's one of the core competences that, that, that we, we have. It's already and, in the name, right? Exactly. Um, and it's super fascinating what is happening with, uh, uh, blockchain technologies. Now again, with, with, let's say Bitcoin, um, um, getting from day to day to new all time highs. I mean, the first, time where the market crashed it was quiet and was good because a lot of people that were just there to 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 make huge profits they they left the 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 space and in the meantime a lot of work has been done um and what is super fascinating uh from my perspective is that that we have now these digital organizations that are capable of managing assets in the millions with smart contracts on one hand programmatically on the other hand it's being governed with this worldwide community that makes sure that these organizations work. And I mean, Bitcoin is already something like that. There is no company that is responsible for Bitcoin. There's no management. There's no CEO of, of, of Bitcoin. Um, there's no address. There's just a, a protocol, more or less, and the different actors that need to find solutions. And I think this is something we can learn a lot um, of in, in, in setting up the future companies, the future startups. Um, and, and, and yeah, with all this potential, obviously there comes huge risk because at the moment, who, who, who is reliable if something goes wrong in a decentralized uh, platform? There's nobody. There's no off switch. Um, and on the other perspective as well is that, that from a society perspective, we have these big multinational companies 
that are making millions or billions even, um, and they pay not a dollar in taxes because they're so tax optimized. Okay, that happens after like being 15 or 20 years in, in business and growing so fast. With with this decentralized organization, we're building these companies from day one, more or less. They they don't exist in a jurisdiction, right? Um, and they're not contributing anything to to the whole infrastructure that we as a society are providing to that. So I think that's a lot of uh, big open questions, um, huge opportunities and possibilities, and 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 some um, things that we really need to to to. Uh, consider and 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 think as a society how we want to handle that without sort of stopping this this uh, innovation that is happening. So people who will follow you, they will embark on a fascinating and interesting journey. I can tell. So we have two last parts for this interview. The first one, I already saw you brought some books into the studio. So we want to know about your personal gadgets and resources that you can recommend to our readers. What did you bring to us? So I brought to you two books that I'm reading at the moment. One is uh, Utopien für Realisten from Ruther Bregman, which I can really recommend. And what is super happy or what's super interesting for me uh, is that I said, like, I was just convinced that basic income makes sense. Ruther Bregman explains me why it has already make, made sense in the 70s and before that. So that's, that's super interesting to, to go into this. And, um, I brought the entrepreneurial state from Mariana Mazzucato, which, uh, sort of argues that the role of the state is way more important than it is uh, uh, shown in the in the public discussion at the moment, um, and she doesn't argue only. She she brings evidence that it was crucial that the state of California, for instance, invested so much in innovation um, to to make the Silicon Valley ecosystem emerge. And so far, uh, as I understood it, it's okay. It's always these 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 famous venture capitalists or these famous entrepreneurs. This is a fresh perspective um, on on on. Yeah, the state, uh, the, the the role of the state, which I think as as Switzerland again, these two topics are super important. How can we stay innovative? What should we do as a as a as a nation, as a as a society, to to uh, keep bringing this innovation um, to to our people? I mean, that's the current books that I read, and then recommendations. I mean, I've read uh, uh, or, or or the one that the, the mom test already. Uh, um, recommended that and then it's hey what interests you I mean I read different things I think that's the right recommendation go for what feels right to you personally so now for the very last part we have some rapid fire questions for you I either give you a selection or a short question where you can answer in one to two sentences are you ready I'm ready so the first one what are you most proud of in your life Hey, um, I would say I'm most proud of my parents. And because, I mean, uh, it's difficult to be their, their son. And I think my brothers will agree. Um, because my, my dad sort of was born in Eodain, which is sort of like the hills, uh, in Morocco with, I don't know, uh, 10 people, no electricity. Uh, today still no water and sort of made it to Switzerland. <laughs> My mom is from the same region and, and they, uh, yeah, raised us and, and, and became part of, of the Swiss society, um, contributing to the society 
and not losing their their roots. So I would say like they make me most proud um, with all their errors and faults they have, you know. Beautiful. Lake or mountains? Oh, difficult one. If you if you've had said ocean, I would have said ocean immediately. Um, lake or mountains? Yeah, I would pick mountains. Fair point. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? So when I was 20, I started studying. Um, difficult. Do what you did. <laughs> <laughs> That's also like, don't take, take life too seriously. Don't think about that advice. It will come later. <laughs> Do you have any favorite mistake? We, we cut... You know, we talked about a couple where you said this was a learning, but is there anything that you would call your favorite mistake? Oh, difficult. I think something that my girlfriend will laugh about is that um, uh, the, she gifted me a, a guitar um, on my birthday and guitar lessons. And that's probably the very first time that I learned something new with experts and I actually uh, uh, told her, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I would say one of my biggest mistakes is instead of trying to figure out everything by myself and, and trying to teach myself all the things, um, it would have made sense to <laughs> talk to people that already know how to do these things and, and sort of, yeah, really work with, with these uh, experts. Makes sense. And the last one for you today here, I'm really curious, Zurich or Berlin? Oh um, yeah, definitely Zurich because I'm 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 here. So for now, but that might change in the future. <laughs> oh, I'm not so sure. Like, uh, hey, I mean, yeah. If what is nice, if you live somewhere, you have friends and people there, and this will always result of you coming back or they coming to visit. Um, but yeah, I'm old now. No kidding. But the, this back and forth, yeah. It, it's okay to do that in the 20s, but now it's okay. So it's probably a thing of the past. Yeah, probably. Nice. Malik, thank you so much for all the insights, the stories that you shared with us today. It was a really a lot of fun and a pleasure to have you as a guest. And all the best and lots of success for whatever you will tackle in the future. Silvan, thank you very much for uh, having me. And uh, it was a big pleasure to talk with you. We hope you enjoyed today's show. This episode was produced in cooperation with the ETH Entrepreneur Club, a student organization which aims to inspire, educate, and empower the next generation of entrepreneurs. The ETH Entrepreneur Club holds more than 40 events every year, resulting in an impressive alumni list of successful startups. If you want to keep up with their busy agenda, make sure to give them a follow on social media.